Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physio and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. On today's show, I have Dr. Hugh Fulliger, a lecturer in sport and exercise science at the University of Technology, Sydney. Hugh is a very experienced practitioner, both in elite sport and academically, and today we'll be discussing an area he is very knowledgeable about, recovery. Today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of the Nordboard. The Nordboard has become the gold standard for assessing field-based hamstring strength. By combining advanced sensors, real-time data visualizations, and cloud analytics, the Nordboard helps practitioners to accurately measure, monitor, and train individuals' hamstring strength or imbalances. To learn more about the Nordboard, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. You're listening to the Informed Performance Podcast with me, Andy McDonald, and today's guest, Dr. Hugh Fulliger. Hugh, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. Hi, Andrew. Glad to be on. Thanks for the invitation. No pleasure. Just to begin with, for the listener's benefit, would you be able to kind of outline, uh, I guess, your current background and then bring us up to the current day, maybe with, with what you're doing currently? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, I won't bore your listeners with an extensive uh, past CV, but uh, currently I'm a lecturer at the University of Technology, Sydney, uh, in sport and exercise science, and I've been here since 2018. Um, so currently teaching in the areas of uh, sport and exercise medicine, as well as exercise rehabilitation and performing research um, in various areas as well, which you can touch on a bit later. So sort of standard academic role at present. Uh, previously, I've studied at the University of Wollongong back in the mid to late 2000s, 2010s. Um, so I graduated from my undergraduate in 2010 and then got my master's at the University of Wollongong as well from 2011, 2012, I think it was. And then from there, I was fortunate enough to get a PhD in applied sports science position in Germany at a FIFA Medical Centre of Excellence at the University of um, of Saarland, which is over in Saarbrücken uh, in Germany, uh, working with various teams over there. And after my PhD from 2013 to 2015, I went over to the United States and worked at the University of Oregon for their American football team. And then following that, I worked for the Oakland Raiders in the NFL after that. And then after the 2017 season, um, yeah, came home and started work at UTS from 2018 onwards. So, yes, we're currently in lockdown in Sydney, which isn't pleasant, but we've been pretty fortunate with the lockdown at, at time of recording, but it seems to be going a bit south now. Um, so going for the, the full working from home, full lockdown mode at the moment, Andrew. Yeah, good stuff. It sounds like you've got some good international experience there as well with uh... With a couple of different countries uh, beyond your own as well. Yeah, for sure. I do miss I do miss travelling. I would say, but there's probably there's much more important things going on in the world um, than allowing people to travel, as we all know. Um, but yeah, very fortunate to have not just um, sort of maybe an international network and a lot of good people working with a lot of good people around the world, but also the experiences that that puts you in. So when you're working in do whether it's different lab a different sport, working with different people, different athletes, that really helps you gain better perspective, I think, not just in the work environment but from a life perspective. And when you meet different people and the more people that you meet from different backgrounds, 
um, and so forth that I think it's been really beneficial beneficial for myself both as a practitioner and and now as a researcher and a teacher as well so you know when we're teaching we've got some classes which are upwards of 400 to 450 students or cohorts sorry of 400 to 450 students when you're teaching um, a lot of students of different backgrounds and um, who come from either different areas or have different perspectives on life and different experiences in sport then pulling on that international experience and different either whether it's ways of life or strategies it is re- it's really beneficial it's definitely helped me so yeah very very grateful for that for sure yeah and i know you've got a an interest in recovery and it's obviously you know recovery for i think everybody that works in sport is an inescapable and uh, kind of obvious part of the job to consider what you know for you personally what triggered the you know maybe um extra interest in recovery um, not <laughs> initially. I'm not. I can't actually remember, but I do remember when I was actually deciding whether I wanted to do a PhD, and I was talking to um, Aaron Coots and Rob Duffield, from who are currently my colleagues here at UTS. And I remember we were. Dri- I was driving to Melbourne, and I was looking at the side of the road, and there was a one of those uh, driver fatigue things, and they were saying, "Make sure you get enough sleep." So you're able to, you know, pull over every two hours, take a nap if you need to. And I was like, oh, sleep, that's actually, that's pretty interesting. And I remember doing a little bit of reading outside that and then approaching um, Aaron and Rob about that topic back then. So it was sort of a, a very random trigger, I suppose. And then Rob had a bit of experience in that area. And then that sort of sleep interest, I think, um, sparked the sort of entry into that, or at least my interest into recovery, I would say. Um, and then, from a sporting perspective, they had there. While there was some some great studies out there, there wasn't a, a whole lot of research, or at least published research in that area. And so we saw it as a good opportunity to investigate those sort of areas from a, from a sporting perspective, and especially um, from an elite sport perspective. And as we know, that sort of that growth has become quite exponential over the last yeah seven to ten years, really, um, in that sleep area. Um, but from a recovery perspective, I'm always torn between whether it's important or whether it's not because sometimes we definitely we overemphasize recovery and we, we go on and we read articles online about how important it is for an NBA player playing five games in seven days or an EPL player in a congested fixture schedule or you know a baseball or um, a hockey player, an ice hockey player playing, you know, copious amounts of games in a short amount of time and having a limited recovery time frame. But a lot of the time players are able to cope. So I'm always torn between we overemphasize recovery and we need to focus on more. So I'm always going back and forth about which is um which is more important. And I think probably the overarching principle is that it's really depending on who you're working with and your environment and context that that surrounds you. So Recovery in some contexts is going to be a lot more important than it is in others, um, and obviously that varies across yeah different sports and different athletes. I think, but I think given, especially from a, re- I suppose maybe more recently, an interest in that sort of return to play. So recovery from an injury, we'd always talk about recovery mainly from a whether it's a physical or a cognitive effort, and then our ability to rebound from that. But coming back from injury, I think is one area that. Um, Definitely have recent interest in teaching in the sort of rehabilitation area. Um, definitely interested in that. How what's our ability to recover from a 
from an injury and how quickly can we get back because that can be really helpful as well. So there's a lot of areas, I suppose, from a inverted commas recovery perspective. Um, yeah, but I find it I find it super interesting and maybe we can go into some more detail about some of the, the facets that are more important than others. Yeah, 100%. And I think this question could be a little bit too vague to answer. So um, I'll leave it up to you where you want to roll with this one. But what are the kind of components within recovery that you, you know, you particularly focus on when you're working with athletes? And I know that's context specific. Um, and I guess maybe within that, is there any kind of specifics or non-negotiables that you really prioritize? Yeah, for sure. And I think like those, like we say, those basics or the non-negotiables, that's probably the biggest focus, both from working as a practitioner, I think importantly, what you view as important as a researcher as well, and then also what we're trying to teach um, either our, either our athletes or our undergraduate students for sure. And that's, yeah, I think I was talking to um, a few of my colleagues about this before and having the big rocks in the jar, and I know a lot of people have used that analogy before, so I think I'm stealing that one um, probably from someone else, but our big rocks in the jar, I suppose, are our sleep and nutrition. And that's that's nothing new. That's that's out there. But I think definitely with the athletes I've worked with, those are the two biggest areas which have probably got the biggest efficiencies. And a lot of the other focus, rightly or wrongly, has been on the sort of the other little things that we, we do, whether it's compression or um, ice water immersion or whatever it is. And I think that we probably haven't given enough focus to sleep and nutrition prior or definitely maybe it's always had a focus, but definitely at least athletes that I've worked with haven't had an education or a, have had people informing them of the importance of those two aspects, I'd say. So I think that's probably where we can make one of the biggest differences is in those two areas. And then really other than those big rocks it's about filling the sand in the rest of that jar so the little grains of sand yeah it might be a compression um, it might be cold water immersion uh, it might be yoga it might be massage it might be cognitive recovery so you know listening to meditation or reducing anxiety um, calming down these sorts of things um, there's lots of different other aspects which are going to be more important for other people but I think those two big rocks of recovery of sleep and nutrition, at least on a chronic perspective, they're really important because we know that a lot of great athletes don't need sleep to perform. So I think, again, there's, there's always a misconception, I think, that people say, oh, you know, everyone's banging on about sleep and nutrition, but we know that some athletes you know, eat like crap as <laughs> they're able to perform or some athletes never sleep before a really important event, yet they're still able to perform at the optimum level. I think Ash Barty, who won Wimbledon the other day, was talking in her interview that she barely slept the night before and, you know, she played extraordinarily well on the world's biggest stage. So it's not to say that sleep is critical for these one-off bout efforts, and we're going into a bit of detail here, but it's about instigating healthy behaviours in a long-term perspective. And I think that's where you probably get the most buy-in with athletes when you talk about concepts which are really important for foundational recovery and are going to benefit them in the long term. That makes sense. Yeah, no, completely. And, and you know, you mentioned that sometimes the the big rocks have the biggest efficiencies, I guess, educationally with with sleep and nutrition. How have you kind of 
navigated that in the past or you know how, I guess like the first part is how do you begin to assess personally where the athletes are educationally for those two things yeah that's a great question like the majority of athletes that I've worked with have either been in in Europe or the United States they come from a different context I've worked obviously with some athletes and teams in Australia but probably on a lesser um, personal level than what I was with when I was working overseas. So they come from a different context and a different background. Um, I think there's probably athletes who have maybe grown up in maybe the Australian or English Institute of Sport regimes in maybe an individual sport that might have very different views on sleep education and they might have had that foundation there. So it's not saying, I'm not saying there's one right way or, or the other. It's more, I think I've probably found that when you first meet an athlete or first come into a scenario, so for example, if you're working in a team and you've got a new player on the roster, for example, so they've just come in, they've drafted them or mm. they've just come from another team, traded or something like that. Usually a lot of physical performance teams like, or coaching teams as well are going to collect a lot of baseline information, whether it's screening, whether it's video footage, whether it's physical output, a lot of that is quite standard across the board. From a sleep and nutrition perspective, obviously you want to be working with either you know, a registered dietitian or a nutritionist um, from that perspective. And I think one of the good things to do is also utilise the expertise of the medical professional on staff to help you with sort of the sleep screening procedure. So whether that is a simple sit down with an athlete asking them how they sleep, you know, what sort of value do they place on that, those sort of things. So it can, doesn't have to be a single conversation based around the sleep, but it should form at least the sleep and nutrition, at least form part of that initial screening procedure, which, which it does in a lot of um, professional teams. Whether that's, you know, filling out questionnaires, whether that's filling out, I know there's a lot of sleep behavioural or sleep screening questionnaires that you can use. Um, there's a lot of different apps. There's a lot of different wearables you can cut it any way you like um, and there's a lot of different daily habits for nutrition questionnaires whether it's food frequency or just you know nutrition knowledge whatever that whatever those are there's various ways that you can cut it and it's going to depend on your environment but it should be a definite foundation within that initial um, scoping of, of those of that athlete or team yeah and we had dr Mita Singh on the show a while back during lockdown over here and um you know, it was a pleasure to listen and learn from her on sleep. And she was very pro sleep diaries, uh, or at least she kind of prioritizes those in the first instance for monitoring sleep with athletes um, over perhaps wearables. Do you, I just kind of want to hear how you navigate this and kind of see how you build the context, but do you advocate for the use of wearables as a recovery or sleep monitoring tool? I uh, just want to kind of know how you, how you approach that. Yeah, I think that's, Another good question. I think that's probably changed and it's always changing what, what is the best way to connect and resonate with an athlete to change their behaviour because that has to be the primary goal. The primary goal shouldn't be to ascertain how much they're sleeping. The primary goal shouldn't be to make them change this aspect about themselves. We have to understand with the athlete, how do we make them, how do we get them in the best mental and physical state to perform because that's their job. So we start with, okay, what are their primary goals and then how do we work back and then where do we fit into that? And from a practitioner point of view, if we narrow it down onto the sports science or strength and conditioning uh, aspect of trying to improve 
a tiny aspect of that whole um, greater goal, which is sleep, we have to say, all right, how can we actually, how can we optimize their behavior? Or how do we optimize their sleep behavior, basically? And that's going to change on different people. So some people are going to really resonate with the human interaction about constantly talking to them about it, checking in on them, um, you know, forming it from a competitive standpoint, whatever it is. This is even before we've even used any tools, really. So this is our initial screening or conversation with them like we talked about before. And not like once you un we understand the athlete and understand what makes them tick, which obviously takes, you know, days, weeks, months, years, really, to truly understand who we're working with, we can then initiate tools or strategies to optimise that behaviour. So with some people, they might be really tech savvy, they love their Apple Watch, they've got it already, and they actually already monitor their sleep and they put a high value on that. So you have to question, is a wearable going to improve this person's behaviour? And I think, you know, this this an argument for an argument against, I don't think it's a, it's a pro or a con. One of these things that, you know, these wearables do do is that some of them at least accurately measure sleep. So if we don't, if we've got a blank canvas with our athletes, which in a lot of cases we will, they'll provide a good um, objective measure um, of, of sleep duration um, and sleep quality. So they're obviously not as good as um, polysomnography or PSG, but they'll give us a good objective measure outside of the sleep diaries. But I've worked, again, and I agree with Meta in, in a lot of ways, who I've worked with a lot of medical professionals who don't see the benefit in wearables versus a subjective sleep diary. And I'm definitely not on either side of the fence <laughs> and I'm not trying to just play 50-50 here, Andrew, but um, I can definitely see both ways and I think there's a strength for both of those tools. So I think if you've got the resources to do trials on really important players who you know little about, I think they can be incredibly beneficial for, cert for, cert for certain athletes. Again, not all of us are going to have the funds available to purchase these items and in that case, using apps on your phone or nearables, although they might not be as accurate. Again, if the athlete's engaging with it and they enjoy the tracking aspect, then that's contributing to our overall goal of actually trying to change their behaviour. So if we can get their buy-in and trust to say, okay, look, we want you to sleep more because we don't think you're sleeping as well as you could, and these are the benefits if you do do that, and if they're doing that in a certain way, then that's that's half the battle. If wearables can help that, absolutely use them. But if a sleep diary or an app on the phone is going to do the same job in changing that behaviour, then I think um, there's an argument for that as well. Again, we've got to be careful with changing behaviour versus actually measuring as well. So obviously our wearable is going to give us some more accurate information than a subjective sleep recall. But again, if our overall goal is to change the behaviour, then we have to understand which is best for that. For example, I've used wearable technology where athletes feel like that's invasive and that's their time. Whereas if they're inputting their sleep duration on their phone or through an app or their Apple Watch that they wear anyway, they feel that that's less intrusive than if you say, hey, look, I've got this new fancy tool and here it is. Mm. Conversely, I've had some athletes who are like, yeah, what's this great new tool? Oh, that's awesome. Gives me a sleep score, makes it competitive. It's got a great software platform. So it works both ways. I think there's definitely places for both um, for the applied sports science practitioner. 
Yeah, it's definitely it's definitely an interesting trade off, isn't it? That kind of uh, low tech uh, but bigger behavioural benefit and accountability benefit versus um, you know a better monitoring tool from a sports science and and, and definitely AMS system point of view. I think it's a hard. Uh, it's not hard if you know what you're looking for, but it's it is a big trade off one versus the other because you're probably not going to get many athletes to do both. Yeah, yeah, I think sometimes yeah, you've, you've just got to like you say understand what our goals are and work back from there. And that, that, that's how the best, you know, that's how the best people work, whether it's an athlete, a coach, a practitioner, a researcher, a student. You know, what are our goals? What, what are we trying to learn? What are we trying to do? What's our objectives? And then how can we work back from there? And it, once we narrow down on a, a tiny aspect of that, all right, I'm trying to improve the physical capacity of this athlete to perform or the mental capacity for them, and physically, they're at a really optimum state and the level of improvement is, is pretty minimal. And I've worked with some American football athletes where that's the case. These guys are just incredible freaks of nature from a physical perspective. And the ability for us to extract physical improvements is there, but it's, it's not a huge concept because, you know, they're just, they're just incredible athletes. But, for example, they really struggle to recover from games based on a number of things because, obviously, the game's pretty brutal. But, you know, they definitely don't sleep and eat how they possibly could. Where, so, and so, in that case, an improvement can really be made with that person and that has to really be a priority for that athlete. So I know that might sound a bit controversial to not ignore the potential strength and power potential improvements over time or the maintenance of those concepts. I'm not saying that, but I think with each athlete or each team, you're going to have your deficiencies and that's your ability or should be the goal of, as a practitioner to try and identify those deficiencies and say, okay, how can I improve that for that person? And you've got to be careful with that because you can't be like going up to a MVP player and say, hey, you're amazing, but you do this and this really poorly. <laughs> it's, it's a... It's definitely a balancing act of how you pre- either present that or um, once you've got gathered that data or gathered that intel on that person that that, that aspect can be improved. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, that's where the biggest wins are. So I, I don't think it's a trade-off of wearable versus um, wearable versus sleep diary or this strength exercise over that strength exercise. Yeah, it's, it's much more of a holistic balance between the two and that's going to depend on who you're working with and, and what context you're working in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when we were chatting ahead of this episode, you touched on cognitive recovery and the, the cognitive system, if we, if we call it that, and its ability to, uh, its, its readiness or ability to perform. Can you elaborate on that one and, and talk us through it? Um, but also maybe how you would understand it or assess it, I guess, in an athlete as well. Yeah. Well, I, <laughs> I, I introduced that not from a, a, uh, a past of incredible expertise, Andrew, but <laughs> as at least a uh, focus of interest. <laughs> um, but it, it definitely, yeah. So it, both from applied experience and then doing research with uh, with teams and athletes uh, over here in my current position, I think that that's probably an aspect that we always talk about, but how do we truly um, assess it and what importance do we place on it? So we always, you know, you can read any media article about, you know, the incredible pressures that are 
you know, a hundred meter sprinter or a hundred meter freestyle final at the Olympics, which is obviously coming up. And how do we assess the ability of that person to cognitively be ready to perform at their best? And how do we incorporate that if we should in that, I suppose, that performance preparation team and who, who takes on that role? Is it the sports psych? Is it the sports science practitioner? Is it the S&C? Is that person all one person because of budgetary constraints or the, you know, the goals of or the staffing of that performance team? So in terms of the importance of it, I think we always talk about it, but we don't always know how to either accurately assess or understand the importance within the context that we're working with. So, for example, we work with um, firefighters at the moment and we've had a huge range or a vast array of increase in intensity of bushfires in the recent years, which you might have seen from 2019, 2020 summer. And I don't think anyone would doubt the importance of cognitive recovery from a firefighter perspective or the cognitive performance for a firefighter when it's life and death compared to a 100-metre sprinter who's probably – it's probably a lot of internal and external pressures which build up on anxiety and nervousness and the want and desire to perform. So from a firefighter perspective, these guys are faced with incredibly long shifts, incredibly long arduous physical demands and having to constantly make good and, importantly, safe decisions to make sure that either they're – fellow colleagues are safe within a certain incident or that they're making sure that the people they're trying to save are safe as well. So from a life and death perspective, um, that's sort of where we've sort of increased our interest, at least from a research uh, perspective. So we've done a recent study where we looked at the effect of heat and cooling on physical and cognitive performance of tasks um, for firefighters uh, following yeah, a range of stressful firefighting tasks uh, in the heat and I think one of the biggest things that we looked for was, and this was relayed to us through our fire, um, fire rescue New South Wales, who is who we're working with at the moment, and the key stakeholders who were made up of a group of firefighters and also fitness and health and safety team members, is that that ability for a firefighter to perform either decision making, uh, react quickly and efficiently, as well as to making sure that they're assessing risk in the right way. Like they, they say that these things are probably the most important aspects of their job, yet in no way do they test them, do they understand them, or do they, um, in the field at least, obviously they'll recruit people based on a certain number of tests and tasks, which they do a great job of doing that. But it's really difficult to know when people are in the field in these crazy circumstances, which you can't research and you can't understand what it's like in those circumstances. But how can we try and prepare them best for that, I suppose? And so a couple of the tasks that we looked at were just some simple pre-cued reaction time paradigms. Um, so, you know, looking at the suppression of congruent and incongruent info, and um, looking at multiple object tracking. So I think that's a really interesting one that was brought to my attention by my colleague, um, Job Franson, where participants are sort of required to track a subset of identical items and they're designated as targets. And they all move randomly and independently. And then obviously they sort of reset and then you can assess like sort of numbers of errors from decision-making. Um, so things like that that we're looking at. So I know Job's got a number of tasks that he's developed with one of my colleagues, uh, one of his and my colleagues, Andrew Novak as well. And we're sort of incorporating those measures more and more into our 
experiments when we're looking at the effect of either physical fatigue on the ability of our athletes or firefighters to recover from a physical perspective, but then trying to incorporate that cognitive uh, motor task perspective more and more because of the importance both that the stakeholders place on it and as our understanding increases in that area. So it's it's pretty interesting and I think, you know, we always talk about trying to do <laughs> transdisciplinary research, um, which sometimes is a bit of a term <laughs> which is overused and underutilised, I'd say, but it, it's, it's been really interesting to sort of incorporate those cognitive measures as part of the physical um, or overall performance spectrum, I should say. And it definitely has showed that the ability, you know, a little bit surprisingly as well, that firefighters' ability to withstand pretty incredible physical and cognitive fatigue and still be able to perform um, while reaching incredibly high core temperatures and suffering uh, various forms of fatigue and they can still perform under pressure, which is which is great to see that, um, you know, the people that are protecting us are able to do that. So, yeah, I can elaborate a bit on that as well, but that's probably a, a long-winded example <laughs> of how we're trying to assess some of those items. In terms of the sport perspective, um, there's various measures available that, you know, we can cognitively test the recovery of our athletes. But, again, it's really – I think it becomes – again, really uh, specific to the context that you're working in. I think if you have various measures that make up your daily screening questionnaire, whether it's a you know, a cognitive recovery or a mental capacity to perform question would be a good example. Um, there's simple things like reaction time, which are quick and easy to do. But again, they may not be relevant to what that athlete is actually trying to do. So I know we focus a little bit uh, previously on that focus of cognitive recovery as a real big focus for our quarterbacks because for them, um, I suppose, cognition and the ability to, to translate information quickly and effectively to their fellow players as well as understanding a lot of the you know very comprehensible information that they have to digest, that that cognitive aspect for them is is probably more important than for other players. So we placed a high priority for that as part of their program, for example, whereas our wide receivers or our running backs, that was less more of a focus and physical was a, was a much larger focus or at least the maintenance of those capacities. Yeah, so really it's, it's, uh, it's a very fascinating uh, transdisciplinary, as you called it, um, example that you bring up there. I think that's uh, it, it's topical for the times, but it's just interesting, I think, as well. And I think sometimes when you hear these transdisciplinary one uh, examples, they can be a bit... Um, trendy and fashionable and you know maybe like an over-reliance on military personnel and it's not to discredit that but i think teams sometimes copycat other transdisciplinary um, <laughs> examples that they've seen rather than necessarily yeah, sure. what what is it from them that they specifically want um, well, everyone so, copies each other and just goes around in circles i find a lot of the time a lot of these sports <laughs> teams want to know what defense is doing and defense wants to know what sports doing and everyone goes around in circles when everyone essentially usually is typically doing a great job and doing very similar things, but there's obviously a lot of shared intel. I think cross sports is always a really interesting one from a sharing of um, information. I know a lot of sports here in Australia love to go over to um, either the EPL or the NFL and understand how you know, a range of things work, whether it's tactics, physical and cognitive preparation, marketing, how they utilise their stadiums, all those sorts of things, their ticketing, their membership. So there's a range of, from sharing of sports, 
I think that's a really good um, good sharing of information that can benefit both parties. It, it is a bit funny sometimes when you go around in circles and essentially a lot of people are doing very much the same thing. You, you bring up an interesting grass is greener scenario. I mean, and I've seen it because when I was living in, and I'm from the UK, but when I was living in the UK, uh, I, like probably many others, had this uh, grass is greener perspective of, say, the NFL um, and sport in America. And then now I live in America and I have conversations with coaches and clinicians and sports scientists out here. People are fascinated and want to know what the EPL is doing. So, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's good. It goes both ways. But. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's what, as long as I think the most important thing there is that the both parties are interested in learning. And that's probably another um, another aspect, a good thing to talk about is that a good key aspect of anyone who works in sport, whatever whatever facet or whether someone works in defence or really any student that comes through our, we try and really push our students to not just learn but actually want to learn, so want to engage, want to keep an open mind and want to have an interest in what other people are doing. So, yeah, I think it's, it's, it's good. It's good that people want to know more about different things as well rather than just keeping a closed closed shop or a closed book and just and forging on ahead. Yeah, one of, one of the questions I meant to ask you a minute ago actually was, and obviously you've worked in a variety of sports contexts, but how do you kind of approach selling the, the less shiny and sexy parts of recovery to an athlete? Um, I guess especially in this era of, you know, 22-year-old millionaire athletes with personal brands, social media, <laughs> Twitch, and, and everything else that uh, that comes with their attention. Um, how do you kind of, how do you approach the sales and buy-in perspective of it? I'm not too sure about um, <laughs> recovery strategies for Twitch, but I think one of the big things that, I, well, at least it's just it's more of a personal opinion, but for me, I've had the biggest success with the athletes that I've worked with is the the, playing the long-term game, if that makes sense. So convincing and trying to educate them on the long-term benefits of some of these things. So if you eat well and if you sleep well, you're less likely, you know, you're, more, you're likely, likely to live longer, you'll be healthier, and, you know, you'll also hopefully play better in these various different ways and different details, for example. So convincing them of or starting the conversation that way is that look if you do these things you're going to live longer you'll more likely be healthier and in these cases your career will probably be longer and if your career is longer you'll probably make more money and that's usually i've had the most success with that strategy rather than going hey i've found this great new recovery strategy you should try it um go and do it i haven't tried it on anyone else i haven't looked at it but it looks great here it is your performance is going to go up 20 percent on the weekend i think the best yeah that's, that's just a personal opinion everyone works differently but i think from at least the athletes that i've worked with that's where i've probably got the most bang for the buck to say if you if you if you want to sleep better i can give you all, I, i'd try and give them as much facts as possible you know like you know performance or recovery is going to improve like this but biggest ones and actually the best evidence for is is long-term health so eating and sleeping for long-term health long-term health more than likely reducing the risk of injury and if you're injured less you're on the field more if you're on the field more for longer you're going to make more money and if you make more money generally at least um people that 
athletes, especially in the modern day where it's, you know, it can be quite brutal. Contracts are a huge thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, you know, in, in every country, they're a huge focus for uh, both teams who employ them and the athletes who get employed. So people, uh, players are more and more getting cut easier, I would say, or traded easier across different leagues. So their window for making um, income from their performance is probably thinner, although arguably the amount of money they can make is much larger than what has been there in the past. Um, but so rightly or wrongly, your views on, on how athletes shouldn't make their money, um, that's definitely just the, how, the success that I've probably had. Um, I've had other ways where it hasn't worked so well, but that's probably one of the ways that it has worked well, of convincing them of the long-term benefits of what they're doing and how that's going to benefit um, how that's going to benefit them both from a a health, lifestyle, um, and financial slash career perspective. Yeah, good stuff. And uh, taking a bit of a turn, uh, I know you've done a little bit of work into understanding how practitioners and people who work in sport utilize evidence-based practice. Would you be able to tell us, you know, why you've gone into that? Yeah, I think um, I think it came a bit from just working in sport and the and having a lot of friends who work in sport and a lot of colleagues and again like traveling to lots of different teams and working with different athletes and the way that you know people use and utilize information and, and view academic research which i've always had a very strong um, passion in it's very mixed across the board and it's it's not it's not very clear that how teams are actually utilizing or had information to guide or support a decision-making process within their teams and i think that a lot of people i think that's you know i think that's changing and some teams do it great others do it not so well but it's definitely an interest of how you make decisions and that's not just in sports and when we talk about evidence-based practice that's really like that's a pedagogical approach of integrating experience values and research info to guide or support your decision-making process so that can be used in things like medicine and education. It's been used for years. I think what people get a little bit stuck up about sometimes with evidence-based practice is that they think that the evidence is always the research aspect and evidence-based practice, and especially from a sports perspective, is actually includes things like what the athlete values, what's, what the coach values, what's the expertise of the practitioner. And then that all supports the research evidence to help plan, deliver, and reflect on the practice that you're employing that you're trying to improve performance. So I think it's maybe not just bridging that gap, but I've met a lot of practitioners who I would, you know, not try and sell research to, but at least try and educate research on. And I think some of the best practitioners in the world hold that balance of that of experience and expertise that they've they've gained over time, which we know that coaches and athletes value the most, if anything, the experience of their people they're working with is a, is a huge draw card for them in terms of what they think. Another thing is the excellent knowledge of the sport, which usually comes with time and communication skills. So we've done research that shows that athletes don't really care how many, and totally understandably, how many papers you've published or what your educational qualifications are, you know, what, even what your physical appearance is. Players don't really, at least in our research, haven't shown that 
an emphasis for those things, but they do want you to know the excellent, they want you to have an excellent knowledge of sport, of the sport that you're working in, experience, those communication and personal skills. And they're, they're the top things that we need to do. So from that perspective, practitioners have to have that balance. And I think that, I think if we can improve the way we translate our research information to support those concepts, not to take them down, to support those concepts, then we're going to make the way that we're utilising our experience, values and info to guide that decision-supporting making process, then we're going to do that in a lot better way. So that's sort of where the, um, at least the interest comes from, I think. And then one of the things that we've tried to do recently is, okay, well, if that's what we think, let's go and ask the people that actually do it and what do they think? Like the people on the ground with the ones making the decisions. And so that that's where we sort of had a couple of our recent papers in the focus on those practitioner, coach and athletes' perceptions of evidence-based practice in sports. We've done a couple of ones in the US and Australia and, and looking at what the athletes and coaches value and how the practitioners um, disseminate the information that they gain from evidence-based practice, if that makes sense. And then trying to sort of navigate those gaps to try and identify barriers. So how can we better access and implement research as part of that process? Does it even need to be part of that process? Is it, you know, we know that athletes place a high value on experienced practitioners with an excellent knowledge of the sport. Do we need to make sure, okay, well, if that's a focus that we know they need knowledge, communication and experience, then we need to make sure that that's more part of our focus of what we're teaching our undergraduate students so you know do we teach our undergraduate students how to communicate in the workplace i think in a lot of subjects we don't (laughs) so i think that needs to become part of that process or you know knowledge of that actual sport it does that mean for interns and do we need to make sure that when we're putting students into various placements that they need to understand the investment required on their behalf to really research the sport or follow sports that are of a passion to them rather than just going to the big ones where they're going to get a role. So I suppose, yeah, I could talk, we could talk about this for hours, I suppose, Andrew, but there's some of the focuses that I find really, really interesting. And I think anything that we can do to further that stakeholder understanding of evidence-based practice and the benefits it can, they can have for either athlete health, athlete availability, etc. Like some of the most important like key points that we found is that coaches actually really perceive a high value in, you know, and a lot of this isn't anything new. I just think it's an area that we need to understand that information then and go and do something about it. So we know that co- coaches perceive value in research dedicated to technical and tactical expertise. You know, call it what you want, whether it's mental training or skill act motor control, uh, team tactics, um, whereas practitioners prefer that research examining fitness and recovery, mainly because that's what their occupational focus in both those um, both those folk, if that makes sense. So it tells us as researchers, well, we need to do probably more work or more incorporation of both those things together. So don't just do a physical demands focus paper or don't just do a recovery focus paper or whatever it is so if we can incorporate for example in that firework if we can incorporate more cognitive uh, mental aspects within that then that's great and and hopefully the people or the stakeholders not coaches in that in that regard but health and safety and the firefighters who do it will see value in it 
if coaches, if you're presenting research on things like ecological dynamics, which a lot of people um, like Yob does here at UTS, um, it's not just presenting research or tactics for, for uh, with the incorporation of physical, but it's got a, a various uh, number of aspects that are going to help coaches make decisions um, based on those sort of things. So they, we know that coaches love research in those areas, but they don't believe they get enough bang for their buck in those areas. So it shows that we as um, practice, or sorry, we as researchers need to you know improve that. There's a lot of other things like perceived barriers of how we apply it. So that's from a practitioner's perspective. And that tells us that we really need to talk to probably the people above that who are making, you know, funding decisions, whole organisational things. So we need to understand how, you know, how organisations work. So that's probably a little bit out of our wheelhouse, but, you know, talking to GMs or talking to team presidents or, you know, football ops or team operations, these sort of people, and that can help us to develop better research questions and develop strategies which are better applicable to performance. Um, yeah, there's, like they're just some of the things that I think you're yeah, definitely passionate about it because I think I think we can all we can all do it better. I think as researchers, we can definitely do a better job of having questions which are more applicable to the to the context because that's something that practitioners tell us that look this some of this research is great but it's not applicable to my environment okay so how do we bridge that gap a lot of coaches talk about you know that perceived value in technical and tactical expertise and skill acquisition okay how do we improve that aspect other people say love the knowledge and the research that you guys are producing i, I just can't indulge it quickly enough and it's you know, so how do we disseminate findings? How can we use alternate methods that better align with the coaches and practitioners' needs? So there's so many things that there's so many directions that you can go in with it, and we're starting broad, and we're probably, you know, we need to do a better job of of how we go about it and how we ask people's opinions, especially in sports science, where at least personally, we, you know, we don't have a huge history of research in that area so we're trying to call on more experts um in that space of how we should be asking these questions how do we analyze it and how do we present this information properly um, but i think it's got applications for for anyone from a student intern all the way through to a you know a gm really yeah i think it's good to zoom out and um pragmatically reflect and and not just you know dive in further into specific technical nuances that we you know, that we all do and we're all guilty of in our you know, individual fields. Yeah, for sure. I think we can get, like, <clears throat> excuse me again, we can get very, um, we always talk about, you know, getting siloed and sometimes when, and we've all done it, when you're a practitioner, you're working in your own little area and you're so focused on making that area better and it's really important to zoom out and say, you know, why am I doing this? I think I think that's when you start to make real gains in that area is, give it more perspective, understand your role uh, within the greater organisation. And that's where we try and teach some of our, both our post-grad students or our um, applied PhD students of trying to understand their role and how do they perform the role to the best of their ability without, with, whilst understanding that you know, what they're doing is one tiny aspect of the whole moving beast that is a, a sporting organisation usually. Yeah. 
Hugh, I'm aware of time and I really thank you for your insight and, uh, and your views and, and knowledge in today's episode. Where's the best place for listeners to follow you? Um, oh, I'm contactable on, I'm not on Twitch, Andrew, <laughs> so they can't contact me on Twitch, uh, but on anything like um, uh, Twitter or on ResearchGate, just my name, um, H-U-G-H-F-E-L-L-A-G-A-R. Um, and then they're always welcome to, to send me an email as well, which is hugh.fullagar.uts.edu.au if they have any um, questions as well. So I'm always open to, to talking to talking to anyone really um, and, yeah, welcome any feedback or, or views or opinions or potential areas of, of interest for, for, for teams or athletes or anyone. Cool. Well, um, yeah, thank you very much for coming on today's show and uh, at this time of recording, I hope you, uh, hope you get out of lockdown your end uh, as soon as possible. <laughs> yeah, not looking too good, but uh, fingers crossed. There's plenty of great sport on the television at the moment, so at least for now, we can uh, we can cope for well. And we've been pretty lucky over here, so I shouldn't complain. Compared to a lot of other places in the world, we've been very fortunate. So all good from down under. But yeah, no, thank you very much for coming on, mate. It's uh, it's good to chat to you again. Thanks again, Andrew. Much appreciated. I really enjoyed interacting and recording the conversation with Hugh. I think there'll be major take-homes regardless of your performance and sports medicine profession from this one. So a big thank you to him for coming on. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Informed Performance Podcast. To listen to more episodes or to read articles from industry experts, then head over to our website, informedperformance.com. You can also find us on social media at informedperformance for Instagram or at informedpod for Twitter. Thanks for listening to today's conversation. Catch us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.